John chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This of a truth is that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when evening was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. And he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into that boat, but his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled." Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for 
setting your inspired, God-given word before us. We pray, dear Lord, that you will open it unto us that we might see Jesus and his great mercy and love. In his name we pray, amen. Um, well, this is, again, a very interesting section of Scripture, as I have found every section of Scripture. The Lord sets for us here a big picture, and I want us to appreciate the things that we might um, glean by way of application from here, in addition to what we might learn about the sovereignty of God and the depravity of men, which is everywhere in the Scriptures, the responsibility of man um, as juxtapositioned with the sovereignty of God. So here... As we see, saw last week, as Jesus continues his ministry, we see that he tries the hearts of his disciples again. And he reveals to us the hearts of people that would follow him for fleshy gain and for fleshy um, reasons. Last week, you'll recall that our deacon read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'll read verse 2 from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And so the Lord is setting before the children of Israel, before they cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, why he's had them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. He's proving their hearts, he's trying their hearts, and I think we can appreciate that God has not changed a bit, He's still doing the same thing with his children today as he did back in Deuteronomy, as he did in the Gospels here when the Lord was uh, physically present amongst his people and worked with them. He's still proving our hearts to ourselves that we might know what is in our hearts because all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows what's in our hearts. He knows why we do what we do and when we're going to do it but we don't. The question is, do we know what's in our hearts? And he's proving to ourselves whether or not we trust in the Lord, whether or not we really have faith in him, and ultimately, whether or not we love him, because from love all flows. So that is what he's proving to us, and that's what he's proving to his disciples here. So last week, we saw him stir up the hearts of his disciples with respect to the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 6, we read, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? I mean, does anybody think here that the Lord, the creator of the heaven and the earth, does not know where they might find food to feed these people? Verse 6, And this he said to prove him, or to test him, or to try him, for he himself knew what he would do. Does God need to tell us that he knows what he's going to do? Well, he does, because we might think otherwise. He, I appreciate that he puts some of this simplicity in here for us that we might appreciate it. The Lord always knows what he's going to do, and our omniscient God ever knows what we are going to do. And so what transpires in these trials here, and indeed all of our trials, is always for our benefit that we might ever look to and ever trust in Christ. Now, as this wonderful miracle plays itself out, the primary benefactors are not those who feed upon the loaves and the fishes, but rather those that feed upon every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Christ, who is God, because those are the words of eternal life. And the disciples say that to him in verse 
68 of John chapter 6, when the Lord had given a gift, difficult teaching and a number of the disciples departed, he asked them whether or not the twelve will depart, and they answered, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So we must ever appreciate that when we're reading the scriptures, we are reading the words of eternal life. And so who profited from that feeding of the 5,000? His disciples did, because they would be feeding on the words of eternal life. And so the Lord, having tried their hearts, it is now evening, and so the Lord sends his disciples towards Capernaum and goes up in a mountain alone to pray. Now, Given, given all that's taking place here with respect to the Lord proving his disciples' hearts to themselves, I think we can appreciate that he's praying for his disciples. Indeed, he always intercedes on our behalf, but he also prays that our faith would be strengthened. He is the mediator between us and the Father, and he is the author and finisher of our faith. So he would indeed pray that our faith be strengthened, a prayer that we read about um, when the Lord prays for Peter that his faith not fail and that he would indeed strengthen his uh, brethren. So, though the Lord is up high, I'm trying to develop some imagery for you here, the Lord is up on high, it is dark. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the Lord could see his disciples toiling in rowing, for the wind was, quote, contrary to them. Now, Three Gospels contain this account, and they contain different things. And again, as I've shared with us, God has put different things in different Gospels to bring out different truths about Christ. But I'm pulling out a few things from the different um, ones so that we can appreciate this um, um, spiritual darkness that the Lord is setting before us here. So they are toiling in rowing, but the Lord can see them even though it's dark here. And so we should appreciate that though the wind was contrary to them, so is life contrary to all of the saints. And that's the big picture that the Lord's setting for us here in terms of crossing over the Sea of Tiberias. So let me give you a brief sketch here. We have learned from a number of occasions, other occasions, that large bodies of water represent peoples. And so here it is, we see the disciples are toiling to make their way across the Sea of Tiberias. Now, interestingly enough, only the Gospel of John identifies this body of water as the Sea of Tiberias. The Lake of um, Galilee has a number of different names throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It has different names, but here he's identifying it as the Sea of Tiberias. Tiber means, um, Tiberias means of Tiber or of the river god. So who do you suppose the river god would represent? That would be Satan. So he's setting a spiritual picture before us here. So we should think of this body of water, which typically represents people, as Satan's dominion. As Satan's dominion. Now, in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, the Lord gives us, helps us to appreciate this relationship between large bodies of water and peoples. He says in Isaiah 57, 20, he says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So that's how the wicked people are. They're like a body of water. They're like a troubled sea which cannot rest. Now, who is the wicked one? Scripture tells us many places in scriptures that the wicked one is Satan. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the Lord tells us that he is the God of this world and he has blinded the minds of the people that do not believe. He is also identified as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. 
But I always want us to appreciate that wicked people are wicked all of their own accord. Nevertheless, they are subject to the wicked one, Satan, who works in them to do his will. Now, in the book of Job, you'll recall that Job comes to the Lord and um, has a conversation with him. Excuse me. Satan comes to the Lord in the book of Job to have a conversation with the Lord about his servant, Job. And in that conversation, um, it is determined that Satan can have a certain measure of, um, of ill will that he will exercise against um, Job. And he does this on one occasion by bringing a strong wind against his children's houses. And they find that in Job chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. The servant has come and is speaking to Job about all of the um, terrible things that have uh, befallen his family. And it says, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men and they are all dead. And I am and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So notwithstanding the sovereignty of God, we would ascribe the wind here in Job, as we might here in this occasion on the Sea of Tiberias, to Satan. Um, if you were to read about the geography of the area, the uh, folks that write those books will tell you that it's very common for winds to come out of the wilderness through that valley onto the Sea of Galilee and stir it up in, uh, in a very dangerous way uh, very quickly so that people might be caught away from the shore and then perish in the winds and the troubled sea. So... Again, the Lord is setting us this picture here that it's, it's dark, they're on a troubled sea, the wind is contrary to them, and the name of the body of water um, is indicative of the river God, which would be uh, Satan. So how does that apply to us? Well, we as Christians are in this wicked world, which we must navigate through until we, by God's grace, reach Capernaum. What does Capernaum mean? It means village of comfort. So the Lord has set this wonderful picture here before us. Absent the grace of God, no one would get to the village of comfort. Satan would hinder us, and our vessel would be swamped by the wickedness of this world and sink in the depths of human depravity. So while we note here that Capernaum, the village of comfort, is set before us as a physical location, we note that it is in verse 21 that it is after the disciples, quote, willingly receive Jesus into their ship that they are, quote, immediately at the land whither they went. In other words, Christ himself is the location of comfort, not a physical location. He is both our comfort and our comfortor. And that is what the Lord is setting up for, setting us, setting before us here. So now I want to talk a little bit about Christ, our comforter, and how the scripture speaks about that he will do that very thing, that he is our comforter. In John chapter 14, verse 18, the Lord says, I will not leave you comforter, comfortless. I will come to you. And so here we have in John chapter 6, verse 19, the Lord coming to them. He's doing, acting out exactly what he says is going to happen on a spiritual plane. Now, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, they think he is a spirit that's coming across the water. And in John chapter 15, verse 26, he says that very thing, that it's a spirit. He says here, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the, quote, spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. What is the first thing the Lord does when he gets to them? 
Fear not. He brings comfort. It is I. He's testifying of himself. He's doing exactly what he said the comforter would do. Now, um, it is the Holy Ghost that reveals Christ to us. That is what the Holy Ghost does. It always testifies of Christ that we might behold Christ and that we might know him. In John chapter 14, verse 26, speaking again of the Comforter, the Lord says that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things unto your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So in just these few verses here, we've already read that Jesus sends the Comforter and the Father sends the Comforter. They're obviously of the same mind. And we know that from John chapter 3, the Holy Ghost goes all by itself. It has its own will. Um, it being God also. So the Lord is going to send a comforter, and Jesus has said several times up to this point in his ministry that he has been sent by the Father. So he himself is the comforter. So I want us to appreciate that clearly comfort comes from God and from God alone. So also in the scripture, we find this wonderful metaphor um, between the comfort that God brings and the comfort that only a mother can provide her sucking child. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 10 through 13. And Isaiah 66, verse 10 through 10 through 10, that's the imagery that the Lord uses. He says, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be born upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. That's the imagery of a woman carrying a child on her hip while the child um, nurses, and while she carries the child and, and bounces it to comfort it. Verse 13, As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, we know, is a physical location, but the Jerusalem that's spoken of here is not the one in Israel um, on this earth. It's rather the heavenly Jerusalem spoken of in uh, the book of Hebrews, as well as the book of Galatians and the book of Revelation. It's the heavenly Jerusalem where we shall ever be comforted, and it is indeed, again, Christ himself. So, this is the wonderful imagery the Lord has set before us here, and uh, we can appreciate that it is in the Gospel of John where we find the, quote, beloved disciple reclining on the breast of the Lord, as we all should um, desire to do. Um, again, God has made uh, men in his image. That includes men and women. And with respect to the woman, we can appreciate that a woman holds a child close to her heart when she's giving him the sustenance necessary for their very life. And I don't know hardly any other creatures on this planet where we can make that same uh, similar um, imagery. There's a few, but not very many. Most other creatures, the um, source of sustenance is removed from their heart. And this is imagery the Lord used when he set up his priesthood, because it is on the heart of the priest that he has placed the ephod, which contains the 12 stones, each representing one of the tribes of Israel. So God has placed those whom he loves very close to his heart. And so we should appreciate that he desires to comfort us, and we should turn to him when we need comfort. 
Um, so here we have them, again, crossing the Sea of Tiberias. And we should also think of this in the context of what is written in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4. In Psalm 23, verse 4, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. The valley of the shadow of, of death is a metaphor for this world. It is a metaphor for our life as we um, walk through this earth, as we pilgrimage um, to or towards the heavenly Jerusalem, the city without, with foundations that is uh, built by God. Um, as long as the Lord is with us, and he says he is always with us, we will, and that he will never leave us nor forsake us, we should fear no evil. There is nothing a Christian should ever fear. Um, it's been uh, an interesting year for the church, and indeed for everybody in the world, as we have had, um, I'll call it a pandemic, because that's what the world calls it. I don't believe it's one, but nevertheless, as we've been looking at this, People have been very fearful. I've seen it in the church, and I've seen it outside of the church, that people have been fearful. One of our brethren has pointed out that Christians should not love their lives unto the end. And so this has been, for us, in the last year, a time of proving and a time of trial. And the question is, how did we do? Did we trust in the Lord, or were we fearful? So just as he tested his disciples, he continues to prove and try and test us. Um, as well. So we do have to confess, I think, that we do not always feel the Lord's presence. Um, that when we are in a trial and when we're, our hearts are being proved, that the Lord doesn't always show up when we think He should show up. He does not come at a time that we think is best. And so we have to appreciate that the Lord waits to reveal Himself and deliver us at a time that is absolutely best for us and for our circumstances. And it, what's right for you is not right for me. From Psalm 107, our deacon read for us this morning that we note that the disciple, that the uh, psalmist wrote that it is when they, at their, they are at their wit's end, when they were at their wit's end, that's when the Lord brings deliverance, because it is when we are at our wit's end that we are most appreciative of Christ coming and we gain the most from his presence. It's when we have exhausted all that is in, our, in ourselves and exhausted all that is in our flesh and exhausted all that is in our world that we are at our wit's end. That is when the Lord comes, and that is at the time when we'll, we'll see him most clearly. And this we can appreciate in the scriptures here because it, it, has, it is at night. Um, it is, I think, the fourth hour of the night, fourth watch of the night, which means it's 3 a.m. in the morning. So it is uh, at the darkest hour, if you will, at night. And as that is when he appears. The light of the world appears coming across the face of the deep in the dark of the night. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Lord says to us that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That word temptation is, is the exact same word that is used in John 6, 6 here. The word that is translated there is prove. When the Lord said something before us, it is a trial. It is never to tempt us to sin. It is never to um, tempt us to fall or to fail. His desire is only for our good that we would grow in whatever circumstances he has placed before us. 
So he says here in 1 Corinthians, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. That's to be understood in the context of trials that the Lord gives us. Um, that word um, in the Hebrew appears with respect to Lord, um, Abraham going up to offer Isaac. And it said the Lord tempted him, meaning he proved him. He set this very difficult trial before him to prove what was in Abraham's heart to Abraham. God, of course, knew what he was going to do. And did the Lord make a way out for Abraham? He did. He had a ram in the thicket. And he said the Lord shall provide himself a sacrifice for sin. And, he, and the Lord does. And so there was a way out um, for Abraham, just as there is in every trial that the Lord gives us. And that way out, of course, is always Christ, that we would always turn to him. Now, as I mentioned before, each person has a different threshold upon which they can bear no more. For me, it might be 25 furlongs. For you, it might be 30 furlongs. My experience has been that the Lord always takes me to my limit. I think to myself, you know, if I could have just held out a few more minutes, you know, I wouldn't have hit the wall and, and carried on in a way that I'm ashamed uh, about. But I can appreciate that my threshold is a moving target. It changes as I walk with the Lord. It changes as I grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, one day it might be 30 furlongs. The next week it might be 35. And then because of my uh, faithless walk, it might be 28 furlongs. And then it'll jump up to 45. So it changes as I grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And as I toil at my oars, um, navigating this wicked world. Now, one of the things that we should appreciate with respect to the disciples here, that they are rowing against winds that are contrary to them, nevertheless, they kept rowing. And so should we ever be in obedience to the Lord. He does not set things before us that we cannot accomplish with his aid. And so we must ever continue to toil at the, um, the oars as we navigate this world until such time as he comes to us. We need to ever be uh, continuous in our ministry to keep serving and to keep uh, working. Uh, the Lord tells us that we should not be weary in well-doing. Um, and we should always um, keep in mind that the Lord knows how difficult these trials are for us. We know in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says that he cares for us. And this we see in the scriptures um, when we consider how the Lord... Um, works with his people. Later in the book of John, we'll see the issue of Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. Scripture says that he wept. Well, he wasn't weeping over Lazarus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Who's he weeping over? He's weeping because Mary and Martha's hearts are broken. They're broken over the trial that has been set before him. Lazarus has been dead four days, and they say to him, boy, if you'd have been here, that never would have happened. Well, well, it was, it was ordained to happen to try their hearts. It was ordained to happen to try their hearts and to glorify the Lord to prove that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Joseph, who's a wonderful type of Christ, we see it also in the scriptures, because when his brethren come to him, brethren comes to him, he weeps. He weeps not because of the uh, way they treated him, but he weeps because he knows he's going to prove their hearts so that their sin will come up unto themselves and they will repent of it. Um, so the Lord knows what we go through, and he knows it tries our hearts. And so we should ever um, cast our cares on him, and we should ever go to him in prayer and seek his comfort. Um, again, um, we should appreciate that as difficult as our trials may be, 
when the Lord is, of course, is proving our hearts, we should ever appreciate God's positive and necessary work in our life, conforming us to the image of his Son, because that's what the purpose of it is. It is to conform us to the image of his Son. It is to draw us closer to him and our relationship with him. And that is a work that the Lord has done through the cross and uh, continues to work in his people their entire lives, even before you were regenerated. The Lord was working in you to draw you unto him and working in your lives to set things before you. And it is most certainly continued after the Lord um, indwells us. Um, now I want to jump down to verses 25 through, 20, um, through 30 here and talk about some more things as, as we look at what the Lord has set before us here. When we get down to verses 25 and 26, I want us to appreciate that the Lord does another miracle, which is indicative of who he is. When they ask him about, how comest thou hither? How did you get to the other side of the river? He doesn't answer the question, but rather speaks directly to their hearts. And this, of course, is a miracle because he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God knows what is in our hearts, and only God knows what's in our hearts. And so this is a miracle in and of itself, but one that they certainly are not going to appreciate. Now, I want you to consider what's written in verse 2 of John chapter 6 there. There we saw a great multitude of people follow Jesus because they saw the miracles. They saw the miracles he did on them that were diseased. Here the Lord notes a digression, for he knows the hearts of all men. He says in verse 26, Very, verily I say unto you, ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles. He's affirming that they saw the miracles but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Verse 2 says they saw the miracles, and verse 14 says they saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's over in verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, that's when they move in, they want to make him a king. Um, now over in verse 30 of John chapter 6, they ask the question, what sign or miracle, that's the exact same word there, what miracle showest thou then that we may see and believe thee what dost thou work? That's works that they want to do, that they want to do up in verse 28 here. So what shall we do that we might work the works of God? <laughs> I find this kind of humorous. Um, it's almost like there are two different conversations taking place here. The people have no idea what they're talking about. They've seen the miracles that testify as to who Jesus is. And remember, we talked about that in John chapter 5, verse uh, 36. The Lord says, The works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The works ask, act as one who testifies about the divinity of Christ. They've seen the miracles. And now they're having this conversation, and they're asking them, Well, what would you do that we might see and believe on you? And so... Here is manifest the patience of our Lord, for he yet speaks to their hearts about issues of eternal life. In verse 27, ignoring their question about how he got there, he says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. So he says, labor for the meat that endureth unto everlasting life. Now, whenever you study the Bible, you've got to be careful that you just don't go in and pick your favorite verses because people will go in here and, and try to construe a doctrine of salvation by works, that we need to labor to do this thing that we might have eternal life. We know what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, um, where it says, salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, 
lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. Um, so we have to appreciate that in this same sentence, the Lord says he will give it to them. It's not easy to qualify every statement anybody makes, let alone the Lord, but from the body of scriptures, it's, it's in there. You'll find these things in there. So in Isaiah 55, the Lord um, speaks in a prophetic way about what we're seeing take place here in John chapter 6. In Isaiah 55, the first three verses, it says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? Isn't that what he's talking about here in John chapter 6? Labor for the meat that endures unto eternal life. Um, wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. How does one eat of this free food that the Lord gives? You do so by verse 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. He's speaking about Christ, and he's speaking about the cross. Again, man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God doth man live. Incline your ear, and take in that spiritual meat, take in the words of God, and those are the words of life. Those are the words, that, that is the meat that endureth unto everlasting life. That is what the Lord is telling man to do here. Man's number one priority this side of the grave is to seek God. That's what everybody should have their hearts fixed upon 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Think about how much time and energy you spent preparing yourself for a particular career. I had a certain relative that uh, worked their way through law school. Raising a family, going to law school, very... um, a lot of work, very difficult for them. I bought them a Bible and suggested that they sit down and read the book of Romans because in the, in the initial chapters of it are a legal treatise against man, do his sin, and the solution for it, the justification is in Christ. I said to them, you can probably get through that in less than two hours. Well, three years later, they got through law school, <laughs> um, but I don't know if they spent the two hours reading the book of Romans. And so that is the way with man. Um, but that is how what our priorities should be. We should be spending our time cons- concerning ourselves about things of eternal nature. We should appreciate that with respect to unregenerated people, God has not left himself without witness. He says that in Psalm 19, the first three verses. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Romans chapter 1, 19, 20, uh, verses 19 and 20, same kind of a thing. God has revealed himself through the creation so that man is without excuse. He's revealed his eternal power and his Godhead. And so men are tasked to, um, to deal with God and to um, figure out a way to approach God. So we still find in the scripture God's admonition to do that very thing. And so in the scriptures, we find both. We find the sovereignty of God and, again, the responsibility of man. In Luke chapter 13, verse 24, he tells people, strive, strive to enter in at the straight gate, 
For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Matthew 6.33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7.11 applies directly here to John chapter 6. He says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Then he's going to use an example that he sets before us here in John. Or what man is there of you whom his son ask bread? Will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? Is that not what the Lord just fed them with? Was loaves and fish. But they didn't ask. But he gave it to them anyway. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts Give good things to them that ask him. Though they did not ask him, he nevertheless gave them bread and he gave them fish because he is a good father. Now, again, we have to appreciate how merciful our father is, how merciful God is. And we know what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 11, where it says that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. In John chapter 6, verse 44, the Lord's going to say, No man can come to me except the Father with has sent me draw him. And he's going to affirm that a few verses later in verse 65. But none of those doctrinal truths absolve a man of his responsibility to labor for that everlasting meat, to strive to enter in at the straight gate, to ask where it can be found, and then to seek it, and finally to knock upon it that it might be opened unto them. Nothing in the scriptures ever absolves a man of his responsibility that they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And God has set him before us, and certainly in this country, with crosses on the top of churches all across this land, that people might inquire what that is all about. Every man must come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the well of living water, and drink from him. And with that, I will say, Amen.